Has anyone ever called you passionate? I've gotten that word before. Sometimes it's a compliment, like, wow, you really care. That's awesome. Sometimes it's a bit of a jab, like, what don't you get all worked up about? To turn passion into real-world impact, you have to moderate those passions. Choose where to spend the limited resource that is time. Being everywhere is being nowhere. At least, that's according to Fred Swanaker. All of us go through several moments in our life, sometimes several moments in a day even, where we have what, what I call a moment of obligation. A sense of outrage that you see in the world, some injustice that you want to just solve. But I believe that 99% of the time you need to ignore that calling because it's not your purpose in life. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Today, Fred Swanaker is one of the 100 most influential people on earth, according to Time magazine. His journey is nothing short of remarkable. From child refugee to McKinsey management consultant to educator activist, building schools across the continent of Africa, his home, he has already educated thousands of young leaders. He has the audacious goal of teaching 3 million in 15 years. For these efforts, he's raised more than half a billion dollars. We discuss how Fred made his big bet and how you can make yours. Listen to the facts of your life and say, what is this uniquely preparing me to do? And then when you start to see the patterns, you say, wow, I'm uniquely positioned to do this better than almost anyone else in the world. And that is your destiny. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Fred Swanaker says he was lucky, though it doesn't always sound that way. He was born in Ghana, the first African country to win independence from the British. After a military coup there, his family fled to nearby Gambia. After a coup there, they fled again. It was 1981. Fred was woken up in the middle of the night. He had to walk through the bush to get to a safe house. Then I remember having to sleep under the beds because bullets were flying through the window. And if you, you know, my parents said, you, you know, we, we couldn't look outside because there was a danger that, you know, you could get shot. And I remember sneaking away and actually looking through the window and seeing in a tree two people shooting at each other. So that was quite shocking for me to see as a five-year-old. While the outside world was chaotic, Fred's home was a safe space. More than safe, it was deeply nurturing. Fred had two loving, smart, attentive parents. His mom, the strict one, pushed Fred to study. He didn't like school. And his dad... My dad especially, you know, was an avid reader. And, you know, he'd come home every day at five and would be reading five newspapers. And then every morning we'd wake up to the sound of BBC World News as he was, you know, getting ready. He would quiz Fred on capitals, current events, history. They had a great relationship. Only it ended too soon. Mr. Swanaker passed away, unexpectedly, when Fred was just 16. He's pretty stoic when he talks about that loss. It forced me to grow up quickly. 
you know, one of the things that I don't know whether what, what whether it's part of my DNA or not, but I I tend um, to be an optimist and to focus on what I can control. When my dad passed away, I realized, well, there's nothing I can do about this situation. So I was sad for you know a few weeks, but then I realized that continuing to be sad and just dwelling on something I couldn't change wasn't going to move the world. You know, wasn't wasn't going to help anyone. You know, and so I was grateful for you know the time I'd had with him, but really then um, began thinking about okay, how do we move forward from this tragedy? This is when Fred's first real taste of leadership kind of landed in his lap. His mom needed him. She was a social worker and an educator, and she was just beginning to open her own school. This was in Botswana, what became the Swanaker's home. She didn't have the money to hire staff, so she asked or made Fred become her quote-unquote headmaster. He did a mix of tutoring, clerical work, janitor duties, and, this shocked his mom, guerrilla marketing. One day he decided to take students from the fledgling, barely existent school and set up a booth at a big national convention to showcase themselves. How did you think to do that? Like, why would you think, oh, we've got a school that we've just started and we're figuring it out as we go along. Let's go get a booth and show it off to business and political leaders. <laughs> I mean, I suppose that... Um, I mean, that's hustle. Yeah, yeah, it is hustle. But I mean, the, I mean to this day, I still do this. I can imagine what something is going to look like 10, 20, 50 years down the line. And in my mind, it's already there. And so I then begin doing things to make that vision a reality. And so even though we didn't have all the trappings of more established institutions like our own campus and swimming pool and all these fancy things that other schools had, I could see that the quality of what we're doing was exceptional. It was like, you know, hey, this is going to be one of the best schools in the country, you know. You should find out now and, and get your child in right now before, you know, the, before there are no more seats left, kind of thing. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, me, I'm hyper self-critical. I'm always looking at what's broken. I'm flogging myself for doing it imperfectly. I have a very hard time standing up proud and shouting to the world, hey, look what I'm doing when I see the flaws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's always that glasses half full versus half empty. I'm always a glasses half full kind of guy. Even when it's like a quarter full. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) When it came time for Fred Swanaker to go to college, he set off for the United States. He got a scholarship to attend McAllister in St. Paul, Minnesota. And like many who have taken this journey before him, Fred had a big question he needed to answer. Would he come back to Africa or would he become part of the brain drain and make America his new home? Tell me, though, first, what do you think of Minnesota? (laughs) It was cold. (laughs) I mean, I was uh, my mother had gone there for graduate school. 
uh, when I was a little baby. So I used to see these pictures in an album of her playing in the snow and dressed up in all these warm clothes and everything. So I wasn't completely shocked when I went there. I knew it was going to be cold, but I just didn't understand what it really... What, I just didn't know what it felt like. <laughs> I, could, you know, I couldn't imagine just how you know, minus 30 degrees or whatever felt like. So that was a bit of a shock. And so in addition to it being cold, what was your impression of America? Definitely wasn't as fancy as I expected. You know, I remember my, my, actually my, my, I landed in New York, New Jersey, you know, and then I said, oh, let me go outside and see this thing. And you go out and you just see, like, this is the U.S.? Because <laughs> all this, Newark is in the most beautiful city. And... Uh, Corey Booker, if you're listening, we're sorry. Yeah, sorry, Corey. <laughs> so um, I was initially, I'd say, frankly disappointed, you know, in the glitz and the glamour that I'd seen on TV wasn't what I saw. And, um, and also I saw a lot of poverty. Even though the average person had a better life probably than what I saw in, in Africa, there was still inequality um, and, um, and injustice. And... Um, and I suppose the brand America that had that I'd seen outside wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. But you know, still, what I did appreciate about America is just the the sense of optimism and um, you know the, the ability to move ahead if you worked hard and opportunities that were available. I mean, I was you know here I am as an international student getting a, almost a full scholarship to go to a university, and I didn't have any loans to pay back or anything like that. I mean. Like, which country does that? Right. <laughs> what you make of that, that America does that? Yeah, I mean, I thought that that's what's made America, right? Immigrants coming through. And so I thought, you know, these Americans are very clever. They attract the world's best brains, give them a, a, an education, give them a chance to work here, and then you keep the best. And then, you know, others go home. And I said, and this is what has made America great. What was your favorite class at McAllister? Huh. Because <laughs> I went to McAllister actually with an idea to either be a, a lawyer, to follow my dad's footsteps, or to do um, computer science or actuarial science. I remember that was sort of where I was thinking. And the, the math and computer science classes were super early in the morning. And I'm not a morning person at all. <laughs> and, I, and so I didn't like those. And I eventually signed up for this economics class. And it was just really, really interesting because we were studying... Issues of leadership, actually, and just seeing how decisions that had been made by leaders, you know, for example, in North Korea versus South Korea, you know, thousands of years of shared culture and, and same access to education, same access to technology, but just one leadership system versus another. And after 60 years, one country has multitudes the GDP of the other. That class was one of those was a defining moment for me because it showed me just how a few decisions that are made by the leadership in a country could completely change outcomes for several generations to come. America's attempt at seduction does not work on you. You decide to go back. Why? Well, one of the things I noticed when I got to the U.S. was um, many African-Americans that I met in the U.S. obviously understandably felt injustice and um, felt that opportunities were not necessarily in their favor. And I realized that, you know, I didn't want to live in a country where I might be a second-class citizen. And um, I also 
had been just very proud of my African heritage. So at age 21, 22, that's what you're thinking. Yeah. So I remember one of the things that I did in my uh, colleges is I wrote an economics thesis in my final year. And it was about Africa. And, I t- and it was called The African Lions Emerge. Uh, so at the time, there was this whole notion of the Asian tigers. And I said, we're going to have African lions. And I studied some of the changes that were happening. So actually today, when you read it, that thesis, a lot of the things that I predicted have actually happened. Call it Fred's Nostradamus moment. He did in a college paper what many of the best investors do. Take something that the conventional wisdom says is junk, study the hell out of it, and decide for himself. A continent which has experienced over 68 coup d'etats and revolutions. A tragedy. These are lines from that thesis, written in 1999. It's a fantastic read. By the year 2020, Sub-Saharan Africa will be a market of 1.2 billion. Over the next few decades, more and more Africans educated abroad will return to the continent. Fred returned to Africa, and he did it in a way that let him leverage the power of America. Fred got himself hired as a consultant for McKinsey. That's a U.S. firm that governments and companies contract to solve management problems, like how to train a massive workforce or lay one off. Fred, the child's refugee, would now be Fred the Advisor to Important People. He got to travel the continent and learn even more about Africa, its many cultures and economies. But there was this, at least as I hear it, this lingering need for external validation, this itch Fred had to scratch. He had not lived in the fancy part of America. He still wanted to. So a couple years into working, he decided to apply for his MBA at Stanford Business School factory of millionaires and billionaires. He got in. Fred explains why it mattered to him. It symbolized um, an achievement of true world-class standards, right? To say, hey, you know, I'm actually world-class. I'm able to compete at the highest levels in the world. As an African, I'm able to get into the number one business school in the world. And this is an an unusual uh, accomplishment. And so I should probably take this. Also, this is nuts, Fred could go for free. His employer, McKinsey, agreed to pay tuition and fees, about $120,000. Business school was what Fred saw in the movies and read in the pages of the Financial Times. Heads of state and CEOs dropped by class to share life lessons and Rolodexes. Time outside class mattered more than in it, he says. On the weekends, students put a real show on, renting palatial homes in Tahoe and Palo Alto. Everyone was like, well, you know, I'm going to be rich on this. Let me, you know, splurge now. So now. um, Were you splurging? No, I didn't have much money. I remember I'm just the poor kid from Africa. (laughs) Stanford is in the heart of Silicon Valley. Many people around the world want to know the secret of this place's inordinate success. Fred did, too. And what he came up with may surprise you. One of the things I realized when I was in Silicon Valley was that, you know, there was nothing really special about the valley. I had gone there thinking maybe the, the air smells different or the water tastes different. But when I got there, I realized that there's nothing special about it in Silicon Valley. The only difference is that they take a 16-year-old kid with an idea seriously. 
and that's how you know eBay gets formed and Apple gets formed and all these Google gets formed and Cisco gets formed. Taking kids with ideas seriously, plugging them into powerful networks, making sure their work got rewarded, not ignored. That is some pretty special sauce. Fred had an aha moment, though not right away. And it wasn't really a moment. It happened gradually, the summer between his first and second year at Stanford. Fred was talking with some bankers and lawyers. They were from Nigeria. And after we discussed business, very often the conversation would move on to their children. They were all complaining to me about the fees they were paying to send their kids to expensive schools and boarding schools in the UK. They were paying $40,000 per child per year to send these, these kids to these expensive boarding schools. These were the super elite in Nigeria. So I thought, wow, um, why are we paying so much to send our kids outside of Africa? Why don't we have world-class schools on the continent that they can send their children to? Here's a business opportunity. The way you're describing it, it doesn't really sound like God's work to me. It's not like, how do I lift the lowest of the low? You're kind of like, how do I make money from the elite of the elite? Yeah, it was just a business idea. I mean, that summer I, I came up with like 20 different business ideas. You know, I thought about starting an airline from West Africa because I was just responding to different challenges that I was experiencing and seeing. You know, and so forth. I understand you were also interested in starting an elite invite-only dating app, uh, <laughs> and you actually did start a men's uh, tailor-made clothing company, the FK Swanaker brand. Yes, <laughs> and I had an idea of starting uh, an airline and a, and a wine farm and all these different things. That, but ultimately, you know, after thinking about these ideas, uh, you know, for a little bit longer, I would realize that they were just silly or it wouldn't work. Um, and is that why? Because, I mean, they're not particularly earnest ideas, right? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, entrepreneurs typically come up with ideas where either from pain points that they experience themselves or what they see around, what they see other people, you know, um, experiencing. So, Pain points. Pain points, yeah. And so as I was seeing all these different things, it would, it would spark new ideas. But then the more I worked and I said, you know what, is this really what Africa needs? And do I really want to set up a school to serve just rich Nigerian families? If you're going to go to the trouble of setting up a school, let it have a higher purpose. Let it actually solve bigger problems. And was it that let it have a higher purpose or there's actually a, an even bigger business opportunity? No, it was definitely, I mean, I've always been driven by, by purpose and by mission. If I'm going to go through all the hardship of building a business, because <laughs> I know it's going to be hard, let me do it for something that's worth it, not just for money. And I remember I'd also been thinking about all these experiences of living and working in Africa and, and seeing how leadership had made or broken entire countries on the continent and thinking through, would we just sit back and expect good leaders to fall from the sky for Africa or could we do something more proactively to develop leaders for Africa? And, and then so I thought, well, you know, how do you get good leaders? Well, you know, if society needs talent in different areas, they, they build, you know, schools for them. You have a school, you have medical school to train doctors, you have, you know, engineering school to create engineers and law school to create lawyers. So I thought, well, why has no one ever set up a school to create leaders? So that's when I then evolved the idea from just a school for wealthy Nigerians to a school that would actually train Africa's next generation of leaders. So that's the backstory. How Fred Swanaker, who could have built a dating app, became an educator instead. Young Fred had an idea, and he took it seriously. After the break, he builds his first school and 
His mother is pissed. This is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So far, we have met Fred Swanaker, who realized great leaders would not fall from the sky to fix Africa. He would dedicate his life to making them. In a sense, Fred was following in his mother's footsteps, building a school as she had. But it turns out Fred's mom was not proud of this decision. She was fuming. Remember when I said McKinsey paid for business school? Well, it wasn't no strings attached. Fred promised he would go back and work for two years. Not 20, just two But he didn't want to. He wanted to get going on his big, bold vision. His mom tried to change his mind. No, I I told him uh, uh, I don't like breaking promises. These people had a lot of confidence in you. Mrs. Edna Swanaker and I had a heart-to-heart on an awful phone line. But you can make out her frustration. She and her husband had lived through so much. Her kid had gotten to a place she could not reach, and he wanted to throw it all away when all he had to do was wait two more years before chasing his passions? I don't think he foresaw the implications of going out and having nothing. So then when he dawned on him that he had to pay the money, then he came back to mommy again. And I could say, I could say that I told you so. So I wouldn't going to help you in any way. But I'm a mother. <laughs> She's still talking about this, huh? <laughs> I played that piece of tape for Fred. Yeah, my mother wasn't happy with me when I made that decision. But yeah, it sounds just like her. <laughs> it's kind of funny now looking back on it. Fred saw the situation very differently. And this is real food for thought. What to his mom sounded reckless was, in his opinion, rational. A rational choice. People are always finding excuses to put off their goals, to say, now is not the right time. It's never the right time. Then you blink and life passes you by. Fred sat himself down and said, If the startup fails, he could always go back to McKinsey or someplace like it. So my worst case was the best case for 99% of people in the world. So then what do I have to lose? When he put it that way, it didn't seem like such a bad idea. But it had a cost. Fred jokes about it now, but he and his mom basically stopped talking for years. And there was the very real issue of money. Fred recalls the first several months as he tried to work his Stanford business network. I went on a trip to New York once on a fundraising trip. And I took a train from New York to New Jersey. Uh, and I went to see some potential donors. Uh, and the meeting didn't go well. I didn't get the money. And I was so broke that I didn't even have train fare to go back 
to Manhattan. And I was standing there. I don't know if it was in Hoboken or wherever. On just, the path or New Jersey transit platform. Yeah, I was standing on the other side and I was looking at Wall Street. And I could see all these skyscrapers where my classmates from business school were in working. And they were making you know, $200,000 a year. And here I was and I didn't even have train fare to cross the river. To this day, I still don't know how I got back. I don't know. You know I think they say sometimes trauma blacks things from your memory. Fred Swanaker got his big break in 2006 when a woman from a wealthy family in South Africa decided she believed in him. Money begets money. She wrote the first big check, and that helped him get others. Fred launched his first campus, the African Leadership Academy in Johannesburg. This academy is the first of its kind anywhere in the world. It was designed by the same architect who designed the Apartheid Memorial in Pretoria. Important people, heads of state, CEOs, have become Fred's guests. Some of the graduates have become celebrities, like William Kumkwamba, whose life story is the subject of the Netflix movie The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. To attend, it costs 30000 U.S. dollars a year, which is less than what the rich Nigerians were paying to send their kids abroad. And also, Fred explains, the vast majority of his students are on scholarships. Even though the price is 30000 very few people can afford it. And so, of course, we need to have a price tag just to show the value of what we're offering. But the vision was never to build something that was inaccessible based on income but really to make it as accessible as possible. But the only differentiator between who gets in and who doesn't is, are you really willing to, to put in the hard work to do the hard things that are needed to change Africa? And so how are you assessing that for your applicants? Well, I mean, applicants are 16 or 17. Uh, and uh, many of the leaders who change the world start doing things at the age of 16, 17, 18 that give you a glimpse of what they could do later on in life. You know, so if you think about Nelson Mandela at the age of 21 was involved in the ANC Youth League. And that is where he got his early practice to later on lead this massive change in South Africa. Steve Jobs, um, at the age of 12, called up one of the co-founders of Hewlett Packard and asked him for some computer parts that he could play with. And then later on, he got an internship at HP. A lot of people who change the world start young. And so... What we are doing is we find people who at the age of 16, 17 have done something extraordinary without any support, really, on their own. Like what? Give me examples. Oh, like, you know, you read about a young person who, um, whose math teacher used to come to class drunk all the time. So they decided to take over and become the math teacher. Or someone who, um, like William Kamkwamba, the example you gave, realized that there was no electricity water in his village, so he decided to build a windmill and figure out how to generate electricity from it. And how do you find them? I mean, do you comb through local news? Yeah, we have, you know, thousands of schools across Africa that we, you know, share this opportunity with. We, we have talent scouts that go into refugee camps. We go into places and we say, is there anyone here that you think has the potential to change Africa? 
and typically you'll find in no matter how poor the community is, no matter how poor the school is, they'll be able to say that person because they've been observing that person and they've seen that this person is unusual. And they say, if you give this person an opportunity, they'll go far. And what specifically is the opportunity you're giving them? Is it what they're learning at African Leadership Academy in Johannesburg on the campus there? We believe that the best way to develop a leader is through practice. You don't learn to lead in a classroom. You learn to lead by leading. So we put them in environments where they have to run things. So everyone on campus has to start a venture, whether it's a for-profit or non-profit venture. And they, this person plays a role as a CEO. That person's a CMO. This one has to, to um, be the CFO. And they, 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 they go into communities and they launch projects. And we send some to the World Economic Forum every year. We send six students to the Aspen Institute. They're going to platforms where they're engaging with world leaders at the highest levels and then they realize that oh these people are just human like me and they build their confidence and they, and they get to practice what it's like to be a leader. I need to tell you I did model congress in high school and while I am usually proud of this fact talking to Fred made me feel it wasn't enough. His academy sounds like nothing I have ever been to, like Hogwarts for entrepreneurs. And it's worth noting, Fred could have used his knack as a talent scout to find engineers for a Facebook or a Google. He could make loads of money that way. But he was determined to put that unique skill to work on his vision. Oh, one other thing I didn't mention. I did this interview with Fred Swanaker in a tropical paradise. Right before COVID-19 shut down the world. Mauritius is a bit of a global status symbol. White sand beaches, crystal waters, banyan groves, and colorful chirping birds. The British royal family, the Kardashians... American royalty. Vacation here. The island nation is just off the southern coast of Africa, a stone's throw from Madagascar. And it's where Fred Swanaker decided to build his second school, this time a college. I spent a month on Fred's campus, the African Leadership University, not as a journalist, but as a teacher of creative writing and storytelling. And when I got here, my heart leapt. My tour guide will explain. Bezawit from Ethiopia, and I'm 18 years old. Bezawit Asugar is a freshman. And then in the academic offices, we have Nana Asmao, who was a northern Nigerian princess. The rooms are named after great African leaders in politics, arts, culture, science. Um, she is considered to be one of the um, examples to show how Islam can empower women and how there is leadership by women in Islam. Fun fact, did you know a socialist named the West African country Burkina Faso? Which translates to um, people, the people who are not corrupt. Oh, I never knew what it meant. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he named Tribalism is tearing the world apart right now. It's tearing my country apart. But this place is a bastion of multiculturalism. Students are assigned roommates from different countries. You cannot dorm with someone from your tribe. You have to be okay with difference. Build cross-cultural friendships. 
Part of me wishes that was a requirement on campuses back home, though it does weird out some parents. They're always like taken aback, and especially for some of the countries who are not peaceful with one another, right? Um, to hear that, oh, my best friend is from Rwanda and, and that person is from Congo, and they have some kind of, um, I, I guess, bad history or something like that. They were at war in the 1990s. But we almost forget that we're from different countries. It strikes me that Fred Swanaker has created on a single campus the unity he could not experience as a child. The first-year curriculum is a total departure from the liberal arts model I know. Kids take four courses. How to use data to drive decisions. How to be an entrepreneur. How to communicate for impact. And real-world consulting, like helping Uber figure out the Africa strategy. Basically, it's a mini-MBA. I meet many mini-Freds. I mean, that is a compliment. Could it be a problem of using tables? For example, this is... A simple slide. Four kids grab a big block of my office hours and show up with a deck of slides. We get the orders from the developers. They're in a national business competition. They want help organizing their arguments and writing strong topic sentences. Developers. And so did you explain all this in the presentation? Kind of. Kind of. Kind of. And so I It wasn't really connected yeah. the way he is actually now, They're smart and driven, and I am really impressed by how well they take criticism. I'm the tough love type. Though I'm also a little freaked out by all that could go wrong. On this campus, like the high school in Johannesburg, students are encouraged to build startups. Try hard, fail fast. Sean Karunza Kinyenji from Kenya tells me about one of his... He's raised money to invest in farmers and share their profits. Now we have a profit-sharing agreement where now this farmer has gotten much more seeds, much more fertilizer, etc. So Who's writing the contracts between you and the farmers? So at the start, you know, we just had simple, uh, you know, write it out on a, on a Word document. He has farmers negotiating the rights of their ancestral land for literally seed money and on some random word document. Sean? Yeah. (laughs) I'm rooting for you. Yeah. I want you to succeed. But? You're making me nervous. This campus inspires me and tests the limits of what I am comfortable with. More importantly... It's tested the limits of the students and staff and Fred himself. In 2017, there was a meltdown here. It started with the students. Many of them had left traditional colleges to try this startup campus. It sounded like a passport to the future. But like a startup, basics were not sorted out. Housing was a mess. The curriculum was in flux. And at a town hall, students unleashed their anger. Fred calls it the uprising. Now, the mistake I think we made is that um, we apologized to them. And I don't think we should have apologized to them. Because, you know, we had been very clear with them that this is what they were signing up for. That this was going to be an experiment. And they had all been excited when they came that they were going to co-create with us. But when they started... um, complaining was actually initially sort of a small minority, about maybe 30 out of the 180 that were the most vocal. 
and you know our response was we're sorry and we're sorry we're sorry we're sorry and so you feel that if you had pushed back on that vocal minority they would have quieted down no i think in retrospect what i would have done is i would have said i would have been given them the option to actually say look i would have said this is what we can do with our minute with our limited resources we were very clear to you that this was not going to be a, um, a perfect experience that we we're going to co-create together. This is what you signed up for, and that's why you're not paying anything. Yeah, you have a full full ride. You know, we gave literally gave 180 of these young people full ride and laptop, food, flight, everything. You know, some of the things that they were they were talking about were things like their laptop was broken, and now we needed to buy them another laptop. But they broke the laptop. <laughs> you know. So you feel they were being brats. Yeah, in some ways. Yeah. And so, and yeah. you were being a pleaser. Yes, me and, and the rest of my team. And you know, sometimes one thing that I've learned is that in education, what the student wants is not necessarily what they need. Right. So if you think about it, what do students want? They want free. They want um, easy exams or easy, you know, work. What they need is challenging work. They want pizza and you know hamburgers every day. What they need is nutritious food and vegetables. That could be said of all populations, not just students. But yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I get your point. Yeah. So you know. So that was the uprising. That was after the student uprising. Then, then the week later, the staff then had a similar uprising because they had been, you know, working their, you know, their, their butts off trying to to pull this thing off and supporting and deliver a great experience for the students. And suddenly here they were being told that what they were doing was wrong. And so they felt very, very demotivated. And did you expect that? No, not at all. No, it, was, it, it took, took me in by surprise. I went into a meeting with the staff to basically share with them what we, what we had heard from the students and what we were going to do about it. And, you know, th- then that made it worse because the staff just wanted essentially a venting session. They wanted to be heard. And so after that meeting didn't go well, uh, you know, it really almost it broke down into a shouting match between staff. You were shouting too? No, they were shouting at me. <laughs> uh, and uh, You don't seem like a shouter, that's why I asked. No, no. <laughs> I don't, I'm not much of a shouter. So at that point then, we got some advice from some, from some advisors. One of them gave us w- what seemed like um, fluffy advice on the surface. He said, you know what, Fred, just take 50 people and just take them for a walk and ask them to talk and just listen for 30 minutes to 40 minutes and don't say anything. And so for about a month, my, you know, I stopped traveling and just listened. Um, that was the beginning of the healing process. Just said, you know, we're just going to engage with our staff and listen to them and get them to, you know, to catch their breath and, you know... Uh, You're, like, catching your breath as you say it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it was a lot of just calming people down and listening, listening, listening. I feel like an introvert could never do your job. Like, I'm listening to you now. <laughs> the amount of talking with people it takes. Yeah, exactly. Talking and listening, exactly. And just being there for people and, you know, especially in those moments. As a leader, you can't just sit in your office and theorize and look at surveys. You have to go and engage with people. And so I get you're a strong person, but was any part of you sweating bullets inside? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was like, because at this point, all of our cash is running out. (laughs) 
you know, when you're not when the organization poses, that means there's less time for me to go out and do fundraising. Um, I have to, you know, be a, cr- a shoulder to cry on for a lot of people. You have a lot of unhappy staff who are doubting the future. You know, my own leadership is being questioned. People are, you know, I'm hearing rumors. Of, you know, is Fred really capable of taking us to where we need to go? Is he? Does he know what he's doing? Fred Swanaker's big lesson, he says, is that he hired too many of the wrong people. Yes, they had great pedigrees, but they did not share his vision. And while he was trying to steer the ship one way, they wanted to go another. Not everyone agrees. I spoke with current and former staff. One said, the vision was rarely, if ever, the problem. It was more the messiness of the execution. Fred wanted to build so fast They were cutting too many corners, making too many mistakes along the way. Fred ultimately restored the piece by making what he called the offer. He sent an email asking staff who did not share his vision to leave. No questions asked. They'd get three months' pay. All told, 70 out of about 180 ended up leaving. A lot of businesses and nonprofits would not be able to withstand that kind of hemorrhaging. They'd leave or be kicked out. But Fred survived and successively launched more education ventures. That is remarkable. In part, I attribute it to the faith others have in him, but also to the faith he has in himself. Do you think everyone has a destiny? Because you seem to feel that you have a destiny, that you're living out a purpose that is... Yes, I believe that everyone has a destiny. Um, all of us go through several moments in our life, sometimes several moments in a day even, where we have what, what I call a moment of obligation. But I believe that 99% of the time you need to ignore that calling because it's not your purpose in life. And if you follow that path, then you're going to be distracted from what you should be doing. But there's three questions. So every time you have that moment of obligation, there's three questions you ask yourself. And those three questions, if the answer is yes, then you know it's, your mo- it's that 1% of the time that you should follow that path. What are the three questions? The first question I ask is, is it big enough? As I believe that those of us who are fortunate to be healthy, to be educated, to have access to you know, networks and so forth um, and skills, we should not be solving small problems for society. The only reason we've been given that relative privilege the only way we can justify it is by solving big, hard problems for society. So if it's not big, then I say that you should move on from that um, you know, calling. The second question I ask myself is, am I uniquely positioned? Are there some things that have happened in my life when you, know, you look back on and you, and, and you see the patterns that have happened, either by design or by luck, by chance, that have uniquely prepared me to do this that no one else in the world? So in my case, how many people had lived in 15 different countries and lived and worked in 15 different countries in Africa to give you to give me a pan-African perspective like I had. How many people had started and been, had been a headmaster of a school at 18? How many people had had a chance to start something like the African Leadership Academy? Listen to the facts of your life. Yeah, listen to the facts of your life and say, what is this uniquely preparing me to do? And then when you start to see the patterns, you say, wow, I'm uniquely positioned to do this better than almost anyone else in my life. And you start to see what is pointing you in. And so that's the second thing I ask is, am I uniquely positioned to do this better than anyone else in the world? And then the third question I ask is, am I passionate? Am I truly passionate? 
And for this, I use what I call the sleepless night test. If I'm so excited by the idea and I'm telling everyone about it and it's giving me sleepless nights and I just keep thinking about this thing, then, then I should pursue it. So if the answer to those three questions is yes, then this is the 1% of the time when you should follow that and that is your destiny. And if someone is listening to this and they've only got two out of three yeah. or one out of three, does that mean, what does that mean? It means just keep living your life. Just keep doing what you're doing because it's part of the, the process. Fred Swanaker and I happened to talk on the anniversary of his father's passing, 27 years to the day. I believe his dad would have been very proud. And his mom, she told me maybe Fred's students could take over her school one day soon. My lessons from Fred Swanaker. One, don't break your back for just a decent retirement. If you're gonna work hard, you know you will, let it be for a higher purpose. Dare to leave a legacy from the get. Two, don't apologize too quickly. It can embolden people, fan the flames. A concession, rather than making problems go away, can make them bigger. Three, Ask yourself, what happens if I fail? Know your true worst case scenario, not based on panic, but based on facts. It may give you the freedom to try. This episode of Art of Power was a pilot episode. I made it to demo what the show could be back when it was just a vision, not yet a reality. I want to thank the original team who helped me out of the kindness of their hearts. Producer Parth Shah and editors Irene Noguchi, Wahini Vara, and Jim Levine. I owe you and I love you. Also, special thanks to Zibusiso Mutunzi, a student at Fred's Mauritius campus who played young Fred for our Nostradamus moment. And of course, shout out to the WBEZ team, producers Justin Bull and Hina Shravastava, our intern Paloma Moreno-Jimenez, and our executive producer Kevin Dawson. Some music in this episode from Blue Dot Sessions. If this episode landed for you, please review it on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, tell your family, let me know what you think. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Arthi411. Or text me, 917-708-5139. Thanks. See you next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.